Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casello, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy, uh, well, here in New York, it's like, feels like summer today, so that's nice. Happy Women's Lacrosse continues to bowl through, uh, or starts to bowl through the postseason, so they continue on. Um, happy NBA playoffs. Yes, we, we really needed to. Uh, happy <laughs> NBA playoffs. Uh, Happy NBA up. playoffs, indeed. For for for, to for everyone involved here. in this podcast for the first time in a long time, <laughs> it's uh, it, it feels good. I uh, I feel like we've already won the championship, so so it doesn't really matter what happens from here. Yeah, like I, I'm sure you guys would like, in, you know, appreciate not losing to the Hawks, but it's it's kind of like it's kind of house money for the Knicks. Like this we is we better so beat far the Hawks. Of, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Like if they lose to the Hawks and like it's not an embarrassing series, like. Uh, I don't think that really diminishes anything. No, I agree. Well, I don't think it does. But I think I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a Knicks fan who thinks we're not going to beat the Hawks. And like, I'm, no, I'm, I'm saying that's dangerous. Yeah, Knicks fans are flying very high, and I hope. Uh, I mean, I, don't, I actually I don't really care. But if I was a Knicks fan, I would hope that losing to the Hawks wouldn't take anything away from like or or change. I don't know. I just think that like they've kind of. Uh, They've kind of uh, exceeded all reasonable expectations to this point. And, like, the Hawks are a pretty good team and have been, like, red hot and, like, are probably more talented top to bottom than the Knicks. So I don't think it would be, like, any real disaster if, like, they lost in six or seven to them. But also, I think they've been more the more consistent team. And I think uh, Tibbs is probably still the better coach in the matchup. And, and like, I'm sure he has some fun stuff drawn up for uh, for Trey. And uh, should be interesting. Should be That should be a fun one. I actually think this whole, like, going through the playoff field, I think – Aside from maybe the one eventual one seed matchups, there's pretty compelling matchups from top to bottom, like everywhere. Yeah, I mean, all around. Uh, I mean, like the Eastern Conference, it'll probably be whatever in the one versus eight game, uh, maybe even two versus seven. But realistically, even in the I, West, like I there's, whatever, there's some fun stuff. <laughs> I, I'm I'm rooting hard for the Celtics as the Wizards have played the Nets really hard, and, I'm, and they haven't played the full healthy Nets, but no one has. But um, yeah, they stare me a little bit. I don't know. I'm 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 very excited, but also very cautiously, like hesitant about just like the chemistry and and having everyone ready to go. I really wish we would have gotten more games with Harden in. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's something. It's also just like nerves because it for the Nets, it's very much like championship or bust. Yeah, and that's a tough place to be. Um, it's not a place I'm familiar with, but it's 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 definitely a tough place to be. Um. I think, if anything, though, it's a tougher spot for, and maybe not from an expectation standpoint, but I feel like I, I feel very bad for Utah and Phoenix because the, the the prize for being the one or two seed this year could be facing the Lakers or Warriors in the first round. Yeah, I mean, it's no one should have predicted it, but like it's it's pretty wild. It's also funny, like I guess that's the prize, but also, do you really want to be the Clippers who like tucked their tail between their legs and like fought to get off of the Lakers side for like a couple of weeks at the end? Like, I don't know. I feel like it's always going to be a, a, a barrier through the West. And even like this year, the East is, is pretty tough too. But um, I don't know. You, you kind of just have to like live with it. Because ultimately, if you're a one seed, like you're a championship team. And I don't know that it totally matters if you face the Lakers in the semifinal or the final or what. Like, you're going to have to get through them eventually be like you knew this was gonna happen whether they were the four the seven or whatever yeah i mean that's that's super reasonable and obviously like there there is a lot less wiggle room here than necessarily like you'd see um 
in just an NCAA tournament selection situation like Syracuse has where you just want to avoid certain matchups and, and certain upsets. Like the, the distance between the one and the eight seed um, is, is, is large by NBA standards. It's, it's, but realistically, like there's a much wider gulf between the best team in a certain half of a bracket and the worst team in a certain half of a bracket in the NCAA tournament. If we're, if we're talking to most of the Syracuse fans who, who refuse to acknowledge the NBA's existence. Yeah, I mean they're gonna have a long, uh, they're gonna have a long few few weeks here at least, especially with both the Knicks and the Nets in. Like NBA is gonna be around on this podcast for a little bit here, so hopefully they <laughs> uh, they gear up slash they know how to get their uh, their skip forward buttons going. Yeah, and I mean we can talk about Syracuse players in the playoffs as well. Um, there are a handful. Um, Carmelo See? with the uh, with the Blazers putting the Blazers um, ahead of the the Lakers, which I I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, as, as I had no doubt that Dan was going to figure out how to do that. Oh, 100%. I, I, I felt very confident <laughs> going into that one. <laughs> you have the new burgeoning superstar, O'Shea Brissett, on the Pacers. Honestly, I am I am stunned by what he's been able to do. And it's like, I didn't even think, like, I was I was high on his abilities to maybe figure it out when he got to the NBA, provided he did it through free agency. Like, not easy, but... He's figured something out here, and and part of it's that Indiana has given him a chance to do it. But part of it's just he's he's done the most with his opportunities. Like there's plenty of players who haven't. Um, he's really just done a lot with his time, and he's really kind of exceeded what I think even you know his most ardent um, supporters could have imagined for his time as like a now regular NBA player. It's pretty wild. Like I thought. Like you, I thought he had a chance if he could get his shot a little more consistent. He'd have a chance to be a good 3 and D guy. He rebounds really well. I could see him being a really like solid defender, ha- active defender, and he's been all that. I did not expect him to shoot, and still kind of a small sample size, I did not expect him to shoot 42% from three, which he has so far this year. He's over 32% on almost four attempts a game, so it's not nothing. Like They can't leave him open. He's averaging almost 11 points, uh, five and a half rebounds, got a block per, per game. Um he, I mean, he keeps on trending upward. He has had a 31-point game. Uh, he's averaging almost 16 points for 36 minutes. Like, he's uh, – it's, re- it's really impressive. Like, he's he's kind of found, like, the best possible version of what I thought he could be in the NBA. So, um, all the credit to him because, like, he fought through the G League. It took him longer than even, like – you know, he was playing so well in the G League. People were like, all right, why has not, he not been called up yet? Right. Um, and then he finally got his opportunity, and I think he landed – we talk so often about, like, landing in the right place. I think the Pacers were pretty clearly – uh, the right place in terms of like his ability to get on the court. He's playing uh, almost 25 minutes per game for them. And again, this keeps on ticking upward because he's played so well. So yeah, I think he's, he's pretty clearly carved out a place in the league, which is really impressive for a guy who went undrafted and really bad at himself. So good for him. Yeah. And I mean, the Pacers too, like system wise, uh, just playing. And this kind of shows just how Syracuse could have used him much better too. I mean, they're playing with pace. They are shooting. I mean, he's also shooting almost 55% from two. Like, the, the, there's just so much more as you could have done with him from an offensive standpoint. And you're seeing that now. I mean, obviously, NBA conditioning, um, NBA just resources that get you into game shape, totally different from college. I get that. But um, this is only two seasons removed from the player that we last saw um, at Syracuse. We were wondering why there was kind of a stagnation um, in his development after, you know, from freshman year, which looked like, the beginnings of a breakout career. Um, and then his second year, he didn't really get any better necessarily. Um, I, I think you can blame at least part of that on maybe some of the offensive system or lack thereof 
um, that Syracuse had in place because he's clearly figured something out here at the pro level. I totally agree. And like, you know, that's something that could just be, you know, partially himself too. Like he probably knows he didn't play as well as he could have his sophomore year. He still made the decision to jump. And I don't know if that helped help motivate him or what, but uh, you know, it's, it's worked out so far. So hopefully uh, we continue this nice trend. We're kind of adding uh, valuable players to the league after a couple of years where like we get guys drafted and they get hung up. Now you have Jeremy who, uh, was one of the breakout players of the season with the Pistons. Uh, hopefully that the team can turn it around, but he's excellent. He'll have a place in the league for as long as he can, you know, he keeps, stays athletic and is, uh, you know, scoring in transition and doing all of his stuff. And then O'Shea, I mean, it, uh, unless he craters, like he looks like he'll be in the league for a while too. He's, he's like, if he's going to shoot anywhere near 40%, like he's the exact guy you want as a three and D play player, super athletic, super bouncy, um, has like thrown down some impressive dunks, like clearly has the athleticism playing the league. Um, yeah. So hopefully we continue that trend. Cause that's, that's a good thing. And that doesn't hurt that you have like Carmelo, you know, hanging around being a, you know, a couple of years after the league tried to like, I don't know what, what that whole year where he was out of the league, basically almost a year still made so little sense in retrospect. It was honestly, it was, it was a PR blitz. Like it was, it was, it was such a negative campaign waged by, and it's not to like, reason. you know, yeah, like for no reason, it's, it's, it's not to wage a fake news media narrative, but it, it's to say that th- there was a very clear anti-Mellow campaign by certain members of the media. And realistically, like it was it was a bit nonsensical. I felt that the, the general narrative around that he couldn't be a team player, couldn't do this, couldn't do that. Like, I mean, teams can make the decision for themselves, but teams largely bought into at least some of it. Um, meanwhile, like players love playing with him. Players love being in the same space as him. You won't find a single like NBA star say a bad word about Melo. It, it just to me seems like one of those things where, um, you know, bad PR, no matter where it was coming from, took over for a year. Um, and then he came back and did exactly what he was doing before, albeit just like on a lesser volume. Yeah. I mean, clearly he was a bad fit in Houston, uh, in OKC uh, and Houston like it was just neither worked out for one reason or another and he probably needed to I, I wouldn't even say be humbled but he probably just needed to to figure out how his like next bit of his career would go uh, so maybe he needed that kind of like short-term embarrassment but it doesn't make any sense that he was gone for so long and then like immediate pretty much right away started playing quite well for Portland so a lot of teams missed out an opportunity for a really valuable uh you know, sits man slash, I mean, he started a lot of the year for, for Portland, uh, stretch four. So yeah, hopefully he keeps on, he keeps it going. He's been, he's been so good, like so solid for them the whole time. It's, it's really looked like there's been barely a blip. Um, it's exactly what you would hope that a late career Carmelo Anthony would be. Um, and again, they'll be in the playoffs. They'll make some noise to they have, uh, talented players. And Dan Lillard's one of the most entertaining, um, one of the most clutch players that we have in the NBA. So, uh, yeah, Melo will be out there hitting uh getting open shots and, and knocking all of them down uh moved into the top 10 in all-time storing uh a couple of weeks ago which is amazing so yeah shout out to Melo. just just keeps rolling i, I mean i i don't think this will be his last year either i think he's gonna probably keep it going as long as he can yeah i mean he's one of the older players in the league already and and he's still been able to stick around be productive and and change his game to some extent i know we talked about this years ago i'm just how like Melo's game it wasn't necessarily to get worse it was that the nba kind of shifted out from under him a bit in terms of what he did and how he did it. Um, and, and I think it's been nice to see him. It took a couple of years and it, it's, it's a lot easier to adjust your, your career arc 
at like 28, 29 than it is at like, you know, into your mid thirties. Then it's like, oh, well, I've been doing this for two decades plus um, against the highest level of competition. Like if you include like college and some of like the, you know, top AAU and all that, like it's not easy to make those adjustments that late. And it took him a bit and, and he did figure it out. Um, another guy who's kind of figured something out. I mean, he didn't play a ton of games this year due to injury, um, but I felt like MCW kind of like re-cemented himself as just like a solid, you know, eight eight to ten man rotation uh, like guard who could start some games for you, play some good defense. Uh, you know, not going to be much of a, an offensive threat, but again, somebody who can can pass the ball, who can play defense, uh, and, and and even hit a little bit from outside. Um, it wasn't like overly accurate from there, but at least was trying to get there in, in any case, like MCW did do something this year. Uh, he did start 25 games. He averaged 8.8, um, per outing. He had four and a half rebounds, uh, as well as 4.2 assists. Like those aren't nothing numbers, especially when you combine them with some solid defense. So realistically, like he's somebody who, despite the fact that like, I think a lot of Syracuse fans might not be able to tell you what team he's on um, most years. Um, he's carved out something in Orlando the last few years, and, and, and they seem to understand the, you know, the value he brings to the table. Yeah, I mean, it was tough for him because he he started so hot. Like, you could probably argue his best NBA moment was, like, his first game when he had that triple-double against uh, LeBron um, with the with the Sixers. But, you know, he was, he was thrust into a situation where he was able to do a lot of, like, empty point stuff early on. And uh, I don't know exactly why he wasn't able to transition that into like being a, a, a better player for a more meaningful team. But also like those are those, those pre Embiid Sixers were like, there was a lot of funky stuff going on. It's hard to really blame a lot of guys for how things went because they were so uninterested in, in really making things happen for like three or four years there. Um, but yeah, no, he, he's kind of quietly like this is 8.8 this year was his, his highest scoring uh, scoring average since 2016. He he really seems to have found something in Orlando. Obviously, it's not a great franchise, but um, he's he's picked up his game every year for like five years now. So I think he'll be another guy who he you know he's gonna end up retiring. You'll be like, oh, MCW played 13 years. How did that happen? He's already an eight. Like yeah. so he's and he's only 29 years old. So he'll, he's a valuable player. Um, you know, he'll have a I think I think he'll have a role for for a couple more years for sure. As well, especially if he's gonna continue to like slightly tick up his efficiency in this production. Oh, absolutely. I guess after that divergence into good things um, and the NBA, we do have to talk about the, the bad thing, um, the men's lacrosse program, and, and what in God's name is going on with this team. Uh, because realistically, uh, Saturday's result was unacceptable no matter what is going on. Um, just just an embarrassing um, just effort overall. Um, SU lost 18-8 to to Georgetown. Um, yeah, there's just so many things to say, and I don't really know where to start. Um, we did start the game down uh, 13 to four. That was awesome, and then proceeded to lose by 10. Uh, defense really kind of a no-show. Uh, this has been a theme uh, for much of this season, especially against more quality competition. Virginia aside, um, obviously we knew Georgetown was not going to be an easy team to beat by any means, um, but the fact that we did have the specter of like, could we beat Virginia a third time? Kind of hanging out there. Um, in the bracket, uh, definitely a bummer. SU actually played better on faceoffs too in this game, um, and yet still didn't necessarily uh, do us any good. So you can definitely blame the defense a bit for just a complete breakdown. Um, Dan, if you have any initial reactions to this game, and then we'll kind of get into 
I guess, some of the reactions for the program, because I think there's two ways to look at the program reactions, which is like this season in Desco and in a vacuum. And then there's like the wider um, issue of like what happens for after yet another missed final four opportunity and yet another one and done. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to overstate what a disaster this year was. Obviously we came into the year with like incredibly high expectations after um, a, we just looked like one of the one or two best teams in the country last year. Obviously it was cut short before we could really prove it in the tournament, but um, you know, I think everyone pretty much expected us to pick right up. We got a couple big transfers. Obviously one of those ended up being uh, calamitous at, at best. Um, and you know, anything on the field is totally not worth it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it basically like all of the goodwill that we picked up last year, especially for like the anti-Desco crowd really like, I, I don't know. It's hard to to think that this year just doesn't come like completely erase it and send us right back to where we were, where we had that, like, you know, that streak of one, one demon out in the tournament and haven't been able to have made a final four in, in how long almost, I mean, what, what was it? 2013, the last one? Uh, 2013, 2014. I was there. I don't remember which year it was. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's hard to balance us, you know, so often talking about how the game's expanding and whatnot. But like, at a certain point, it, it starts to look like, all right, well, this is not impacting all of the other, uh, both ACC rivals and also the other big time schools. Like, yeah, maybe they're not getting there as often as they as they were earlier. And obviously, like Hopkins has had its own issues. But, you know, I, I think we don't just need to compare ourselves to one other school. Um, you know, it is a notable comparison, though. It is interesting. And and I'd be interested to hear, like, I I don't follow, like, the, the nitty-gritty of the sport enough to, like, hear from their side of things where they think things have gone wrong. But beyond them, like, pretty much all of our ACC rivals who, you know, we stack ourselves against since it's such a strong group and they're all of, like, pretty similar rank in terms of, like, recent lacrosse history have all done at least a somewhat better job of staying relevant into uh, into deep, like, May runs and, and a couple of national championships here and there. Obviously, Duke's been very, very good. Virginia made their big change, and they seem to have rebounded quite well after that, which is probably the thing that most people are going to point to with the Desto situation. Um, I don't know. I, I, I certainly don't think you fired Desto this year. I think uh, it's hard to know how much the off-field stuff, like, totally derailed us this year. And uh, it's also hard to know. I mean, the, the, the clarity on the situation legally and everything uh, and the whole situation with Desto having to kind of look like he kind of fell on the sword there for a bit makes it really hard to know how much individual culpability he has. I'm sure it's, it's definitely not zero, but who knows like how much to like the, the full amount it is. Um, so yeah, I think next year ends up being super, super important. And also we're like kind of nearing a point where like eventually wild hack needs to, he's going to need to make a big move. Like he, he's kind of, uh, glided on, on you know he inherited Babers and that's was going really well right at the start until of his tenure <laughs> until it wasn't. Um, Bayheim is like obviously the one of the trickiest situations anyone in all of college sports will have uh, whenever if something wild hack is here when he retires. Um, and then Desco like obviously it doesn't mean as much to like people outside of Syracuse and outside of like the much smaller kind of lacrosse community compared to college football and college basketball. But that's a huge one too, and uh, the the pressure's been there longer than the pressure's been with Bayheim. Honestly, like the Bayheim stuff's been murmuring for a while because because the thing obviously people in the Syracuse fan base know, people outside of it don't really know, is that there's always been this like baseline of people who haven't been happy with Bayheim. It's not like a 
you know, it's not like the same level of idolatry that some other coaches get. Um, but that's obviously grown really heavily in the last like three or four years. Uh, the Desco thing has been bubbling under since like, you know, a couple years removed from his last national championship, which was like, Oh nine, which feels like way, way long ago, but also like relative to some other things, like also not that long ago, but he also doesn't have the, I mean, it's, it's so tricky. It's like, obviously he's been incredibly successful and last year happened. And last year we, we hope that we would have done, uh, you know, had this great tournament run, but uh, we can't just count it. Um, so yeah, it's, I'm just like working through it now. Like audibly, it's really tough because, you know, it feels like the team is usually pretty decent. We've had some down years like this year, but you can't have like your years where you're a one or two seed and then you lose in the first round and other years you're also bad. Like you need to at least, like we talk about the women's program, they haven't won one, but they're always in the mix. And it's, if we start to slip out of being in the mix, even if we have a title drought, then you have a real issue. And uh, this year was so bad that it's like, it's hard to to just imagine they're gonna like snap their fingers and just turn it around for next year. So I, I don't think I'm like, out on Desto yet, but I think next year is going to be pretty make or break. Yeah, I, I think that's reasonable. And, and, you know, Kevin was kind of talking about this a bit uh, on the comments and on Twitter, like uh, on Monday and in, in the weekend too, is just like, you do need an alumni buy-in like with Syracuse. It doesn't necessarily exist everywhere. Um, SU's alums are such a, I mean, and Desco being an alum himself, like there's such a key, like, like this needs to happen. Like it, it need like where you need to talk to this entire large brain trust of individuals who have a lot of influence over, over the program and, 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 you know, some aspects of the school's athletics. And I, I just think that that's probably being under, it's probably being undersold. I, I think that you can't make a move this off season, probably unless we find out like some more spurless details around what was known or unknown um, about the Scanlon situation. I, I, I think that realistically, though, like, you know, if, if SU can't make a Final Four, you know, next year, you're looking at a drought of, you know, well over a decade from the last championship. You're looking at a drought of nearly a decade um, from the last Final Four in 2013. Like, they, they, there's just not – that's tough for any program. But, like, you know, you mentioned the women's program. We'll get to them in the second half of the podcast. Like, women's program, at least, like – they're always in the mix. They make the final four a ton. Yes, they haven't won it yet. However, like you look at who has won in that stretch, there's really only been a handful of programs that have kind of lorded over the sport. And SU wasn't one of them before that point. Um, and, and and that's kind of the issue here is that, you know, there's there, there's a change. I would say the women's lacrosse has not changed fundamentally as much in the last five to seven years as the men's game has in terms of where talent's coming from and like the style of play and, you know, maybe some other things around program management, things like that. Like there's just been a lot more changes. I feel like that have affected men's. I understand this shot clock, the whole deal in the women's game. And there's definitely been some changes there, but I wouldn't say that it's fundamentally altered how you run a program the same way that like, I think aspects of what had, what gave Syracuse an advantage, what gave certain members of the old guard of lacrosse an advantage um, were going into um, you know, again, like the last five to seven years, I think that's a, it's probably a larger conversation. Uh, and we don't have to have it now necessarily. Uh, I think in the second half, along with the women's lacrosse, I did want to talk about, uh, the wild hack stuff too. Um, not to rant because I do feel like there's a, uh, there's definitely an article I've wanted to like kind of throw out there. 
Um, and maybe I like put some feelers out on this episode and just see what the response is. Cause I do think that there's not, not that I'm anti wild hack. I'm not, but you, you brought up a good point that there is, there, there are some real questions here around like, okay, we got an extension for like some success. There's definitely been some, but at the same time, like it's, it's hard to see, it's hard to judge that success without uh, considering like how much of it might've been inherited or how much of it is kind of like, you know, on thin ice when you look at, I think, and again, second half of the podcast conversation, I think the last, the next three years could really make or break wild hack as a, as an AD because of the amount of like really, really large decisions that might be looming. It's interesting because I think wild hack is such a non-traditional AD hire. Um, a because he's like an internal guy and usually you know you'll see that with sports and we're seeing it more like the Syracuse thing was kind of unique for a while it's less unique now because people are hiring up like former stars former whatever's like all the time now um but AD is not usually not always the case you get like internal people and whatnot but at least they were you know kind of involved before Wild Hack came from the ESPN side obviously he I think the ACC network was a big part of it but also he's a Syracuse guy he's like you know, we all know he was on the message boards before secretly. We all know like all the stuff with him being like a huge fan and that should be a positive and I'm not saying it's not. Um, but it puts him in an interesting position where he doesn't have the necessary, A, he, a he's inheriting a, you know, a Beheim and Destro, which is, is unique in and of itself. Um, but also he doesn't, he doesn't have like the outsider, uh, I'm going to come in and make a bunch of big hires and put my stamp on this program because. Because um, he already he knows was, what it is. <laughs> right. He doesn't. He doesn't have, like, I don't think he has the ambition to go be the AD somewhere else. He's, this is his job. Like, this is the job he wanted. This is probably the only AD job he'd ever take. Um, he probably would have been very fine in another world staying at ESPN and, and maybe becoming the president of ESPN. He might have had that job um, had he not taken the Syracuse job a couple years earlier. Um, so I think it, it makes him probably more loath to make a big, bold move. And I think that's fine in a lot of ways. I don't think we're at the point where we should have fired Desto or Beheim, obviously. Um, you can talk about Q, Q's a whole other thing. Uh, and, you know, some good women's basketball news today that maybe we'll touch on after. Um, but, uh, like, he hasn't really had that opportunity. I, I don't think he's, you know, maybe next year he'll have the opportunity to do a couple of them, especially if football has another bad season. But I wonder if another AD, a more traditional uh, careerist AD, um, would have come in and maybe he would have fired Babers after this past season. Maybe he would have fired Desto already. I don't think he could have fired Beheim because that's just like crazy. Um, but like maybe there'd be more waves coming like in terms of, of what expectations are coming from on, t- on high. So uh, yeah, I do think, I, I don't blame Wild Hack for not having made a big splash hire. I don't think it's really presented itself, especially with a Syracuse guy uh, who is a, you know, a, an alum, a lifer of like a lifelong fan of the program. I think it's way harder for him to make that kind of move. Um, but now it's going to become like, you know, we might have a wave of these things slash it might be a really hard decision for him where for another person, it's just like doing business. I'm not, I'm not, another person might not be as worried about like upsetting the fan base in the short term if they think they're doing the right thing. And I think wild hack may, um, but we'll see again. I don't really blame him. It's just like, it's also weird for an AD to have been here as long as he has and not had the opportunity to make like at least one of these big hires. Cause usually there's so much movement with coaches and, and it's been kind of a strange thing where like no one's super thrilled with the direction of any of the major programs, but <laughs> they're not bad enough to like make a, a brash firing. 
Yeah, I mean, really, like there's been a handful of hires. And, like, the what, what a great course. place to be. <laughs> because like, when it's you like, make a new it's like hire. The nine, it's like being the eight or the nine seed every year. Yeah, it's like the basketball program. The basketball program is the whole AD right now. Um, no, it's and it's funny because like when you make a big hire, like whenever we make our next football hire or whatever, you know, say, say Dino gets fired after this year, like even if we don't love the hire ahead of time, like we're going to talk to ourselves into it. Uh, we're going to talk ourselves into it in the first month or two. We're going to probably give them the first year at least, unless things are like a G-Rob level disaster. Um, and there's probably going to be like an 18-month uh, grace period where like it feels really ish, like iffy to criticize. Um, and that's like kind of a fun place to be because like you can always sell the upside versus now where it's just like we're just way in the trenches with all three of these major positions. And you can throw Q in there as well. Um, well, and Gate too, to be honest. Like, I mean, like realistically, like the biggest programs, football, men's and women's basketball, men's and women's lacrosse, all five of them at this point have like entrenched to some extent coaches. All of them have been there more than five years. Babers is the most junior of them. Like everybody, there were real questions around every one of them. Um, Gate is the only one that avoids them from a success standpoint, but he has to get over the hump at some point and he does make a lot of money to do it. That's, I think the money thing with Gate is like the only real issue. Like I, I just, if he was making half of what he does, I don't think people would have a major no. issue. It's also like, yes, he's making a lot for women's lacrosse coach. Would he like, if he was making, I don't know. I, I just, I don't know that realistically, like if he was making half of what he does, if people would be more or less, uh, really? if there'd be like more heat on him to win a title. Uh, so and if he wins the yeah. title this year, like it's it's all gone. So I think that one's in a slightly different category. But you're right; like all there are all, there are major there are at least like pretty lingering questions, if not major questions, about those five programs in totality. Which it's a very strange place to be because they're all very very entrenched. Especially if Babers is the least entrenched, he's been here longer than anyone since P now, right? Like I think, yeah, because yeah. Schaefer, Schaefer was three, Marone was four, Marone was four, G Rob was four somehow. Yeah. <laughs> buyout Ama- amazing um yeah, just a, so. yeah amazing agent taking advantage of that uh, of those uh the biggies pittance we were making slash, on tv rights slash gross not wanting to uh embarrass himself with a three and out when also that was bad. a little a little more rare g-rob would have done if this was if that was five years later g-rob would have been out after like maybe two honestly Agreed. um the the culture of, of hiring and firing has changed radically in this time period and i don't know if that's always for the best but I know that G-Rob probably would not have made it. I mean, he definitely wouldn't have made it four years. I, he might not have made it three. I think that's reasonable. Um, speaking of things that make us drink, <laughs> Dan, let's talk about uh, some beer before we get back to, uh, I think, I want to talk women's lacrosse for a few, and then, yeah, maybe get back to this uh, this Wild Hack conversation. I think there's some more there. Cool. Um, not a ton new for me. I've been kind of working through my fridge, although this afternoon I got lunch out and I had a, a zero gravity uh, from zero gravity up in Vermont. I had their little wolf pale ale. Um, I know we were talking pale ales a while back. Uh, this is like one of the best one I've had in a long time um, in terms of like a non IPA, like a true pale ale um, really nice blend of like uh, of kind of citrusiness, but also like not over the top, not like, you know, it's not like one of those that's brewed particularly with it. And then just a really nice, like not overpowering hop, profile um so really enjoyed that that was the only super new thing i've had I'm, I'm working on some of my evil twin stuff which i talked about a couple weeks ago now i'm having a, a to the milky way and back uh at the moment um but yeah not a ton new still kind of working through my fridge all good 
um, on this end had uh, some more of that. Uh, How you doing? The uh, Modern Times, Highland Park, Green Cheek, um, Hazy IPA. Had some Cuddlebug from Smog City. It's been a few years. Their Apricot Sour. Um, had some Sculpin for the first time in a while. Uh, that was enjoyable. It was at a one-year-old birthday party. And I was, they had I was a, just talking, a nice beer list. I was just talking with someone about Sculpin and how, like, it was obviously such a big thing, um, right, as IPAs were becoming huge. And then, like, I haven't had one probably, like, two years. And I was just having this conversation about how, like, it just seems to have gone. It's not even on, like, a ton of menus anymore. It's just kind of gone away. Well, the issue is with, so there's the two things, I won't turn this into a rant, I swear. Um, so with Sculpin, there's a couple, and just Ballast Point in general, there's a couple issues. There's like, Sculpin was one of the like standard bearers for what a West Coast IPA was for a long time. It was a local favorite. Everybody loved it. Then people got annoyed that they sold out when they were bought by Constellation. Um, Constellation ends up they couldn't make any money on beer. Um, so despite the fact that they held on to some other uh offerings they spun that off for you know pennies on the dollar for what they paid for it uh to a local spot um in chicago so now at this point all their distribution has been kind of cut off um aside from their local markets um obviously like while the beer is still good others are just churning out better beer they really don't change a ton and and a lot of their business kind of got pivoted toward like um adjunct flavors and like fruited sours things like that and obviously hazy's so I, I think realistically, like it's it's a confluence of unfortunate events for them um, that Sculpin's kind of faded um, in terms of view, and it, I, I don't even think it has the same like profile that it that you know like a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale just has, like because of who who they are and, and what they continue to do there and the other ways that they diversify their business without like compromising like their core offering. Yeah, I knew there was some business aspect of of their whole thing. Um, but I had said like it was one of those things where like someone mentioned it and I'm like, yeah, I just like not even haven't had it in a while. Just like it used to be so ubiquitous, even in New York, where like any a it was on like any decent beer beer list. And also it was like one of those like really solid West Coast IPAs that you could find on a lot of like kind of mediocre beer lists, uh, which was nice as it was an easy like, oh, they have that. I'll just grab that. Um, so, yeah, kind of a shame. Like, I'm, I'm kind of like kind of I've been kind of hankering for one recently and I don't even know where I would go to get it. So. Next time I see Stolpen on a menu, I'm going to have to order it uh, just for the good days because Stolpen was like the go-to. Probably the around the start of this podcast, it was like every week. Oh, yeah. I had it somewhere. <laughs> Sculpin, Sculpin, I mean, I remember when Sculpin obviously ran here, was here for a long time. Um, but then like when Grapefruit Sculpin was first bottled, um, was just, I mean, stuff was drugs in a bottle, like j- just just amazing beer. Uh, yeah, and it's, it is definitely a bummer to see like some of those like stalwarts that like I kind of got into the craft beer scene uh, with, like not being what they used to be. Alas, um, couple more beers on my hand. Pour one out. <laughs> Hopefully not. Hopefully you bought one that is that was bottled uh, at, at, a, at a reasonable time frame, so you don't want to pour one out. Um, but in any case, um, I had smoke infinite wishes from Smog City. Uh, I mentioned this one probably like two years ago it was one of my favorite beers of 2019. Uh, really, really good beer once again. And then uh, my wife and I actually got to go out and enjoy a couple of beers outside. Um, Manhattan Beach started opening up a little bit. They have a brewery down there now, um, Culture Brewing, which is actually from the San Diego area. And they opened a Manhattan Beach uh, location for some reason. But I uh, had their Wildflower IPA that was uh, pretty good. 
um, as well as their uh, their session. The Wildflower IPA, yeah, Citra Nelson House with some hibiscus, so uh, really refreshing uh, IPA. I'll definitely be uh, grabbing that one again. Very nice, very nice. Indeed. So, Dan, we'll talk a little bit about women's lacrosse. Um, unlike the men's team, uh, they just went and got some work done. Uh, 20 to 8, uh, the final score against Loyola. Uh, just a really nice job overall, 13 to 4 after the first half, and then just kind of coasted. Um, still scored another seven goals in the second half to, to grab a 20 to 8 win. They'll face Florida next Saturday um, in a really, really crucial game, but should be a fun one. And, and I'm just psyched to see this team, despite the injuries, despite everything else, just continue to, to, to play their game and, and also just find different ways to win. Like they've, they've done such a great job um, adjusting on the fly, you know, with some of these injuries. And it's been great to see. I think, uh, I know I, I was to watch the game and I'm just looking at the box score a bit um, in terms of, you know, Megan Tyrell obviously being the, uh, the headliner, 10 points in the game, seven goals, three assists, like absolutely dominant. Uh, it was just great to see um, her and Emma Tyrell um, on the attack, they combined for 11 goals, uh, six assists, and just really, really owned things for Syracuse and, and delivered what was a, a pretty comfortable win um, in, in the first game for them. Yeah, it was nice to, to, to come out hot, um, just especially coming off of that men's game the day before. Like, it's exactly the type of game you wanted to see the women have, just a, a top-to-bottom dominant performance. And it's a pretty good Loyola team. Um, I think Loyola was ranked number nine in the country. It so wasn't like a slouch uh, first uh, first round opponent, and that's that's the kind of name you want to have against that type of team. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's really impressive. Hopefully, uh, you know we have Florida now coming up on the twenty second, which is it's a Friday or Saturday. Saturday. Uh, Saturday. So Florida has you know been a solid program for a while. Uh, I think we faced them a couple times in the tournament um, in the last couple of years. Uh, they're not quite as good as they have been at times, but. Yeah, it's uh, it, it was good to to kind of come off of a a pretty tough weekend uh, coming off the men's and and the women were were there as we as we predicted last <laughs> weekend. Like no matter what was happening with that men's game, I felt pretty good about the women coming out with a, a big performance. So they did not disappoint. Um, yeah. So I think the uh, the 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 hype train rolls on. The the hopes for uh, a big run to the final four uh, are well uh, well in place here. Yeah, agreed. And honestly, like the fact that, and we talked about this before, the fact that they wouldn't have to face North Carolina until a title game um, is pretty good. I mean, speaking of North Carolina, I will say this quick. You had the fact that the women's, the women's lacrosse team in North Carolina, they got challenged uh, to some extent by James Madison um, in, in their first game. It was a 14 to 9 win. Um, JMU probably put up more of a fight than, uh, than most of the ACC competition did, including us. Um, so it was nice to see that from JMU, kind of hoping that, uh, that Stony Brook can get something done um, in this corner, uh, quarterfinal matchup. Um, and, but yeah, looking at like some of the recent scores, like Duke, uh, they beat by one. And Notre Dame, they beat by one. For the most part, like a lot of their wins have been, you know, double digits. Uh, so it was interesting to see JMU kind of unlock something um, against the heel. So again, hoping that uh, Stony Brook can, can make something happen because obviously we, don't, we wouldn't, again, wouldn't face that bracket until the championship game matchup but nice to see um arguably our main competition for the title um kind of dissing the northwestern a bit on purpose there 
would be nice to see them get knocked out because then that, that gives SU a pretty nice path um, to a potential first championship. Yeah, and if you want to talk about, like, the ACC men's uh, lacrosse league, which has obviously been generally incredible, um, ACC women's lacrosse, uh, we have uh, Notre Dame knocked out Virginia uh, in in the, I guess, the, their first round, their first game, I suppose, second game, since Notre Dame had blanked on Morris the round before. Um, uh, they're going to play Boston College. Uh, Duke is still in it. They're playing Northwestern after they beat Maryland. Uh, and then uh, Syracuse is obviously still in it, and then North Carolina is still in it. So, um, yeah, lots of ACC representation, uh, a fair chance. I mean, you need a nice Duke over Northwestern upset, but, like, a pretty strong chance of an all-ACC Final Four here, which is crazy. Yeah, honestly, I wouldn't even be shocked. Um, ACC has been that good for the women's um, programs, and, and and to see, you know, that they're, that it's totally worth – you know, the investment there. And and I know that that's the biggest reason why there hasn't been an additional team in the, in the men's side is because why would anyone sign up to just get knocked around five times a year by, by yeah, it, schools? It's tough. Like if you're like a Louisville or like one of those programs that's been rumored uh, to add or a BC on the men's side, it's like, I, I totally get it. Like it's, it's very tough to sign up and say, all right, well, you're going to probably go zero and five. Um, a lot every, every, every year <laughs> yeah and you just had to recruit your butts off and hope that you catch someone one year and then just crawl up from there like it's way easier if you're like a big 10 team even though the big 10 is very good um it's easy it was an easier sell for like michigan where like they're still finding their way because like ohio state was more entrenched Rutgers has had a longer history they obviously added hopkins um but you had like a pathway there because like those programs aren't the same level of like every single acc men's school so yeah um it definitely, uh, definitely an issue. But as we said, like Syracuse was not a powerhouse before Gary Gate, even with the men's history, like the women's program didn't have like that same kind of uh, that same history behind it. So uh, on the women's side, there's definitely a pathway, even if it is also like a total gauntlet. But I would love I mean, I, I will I will fully support any of our conference rivals adding lacrosse. I hope that we see uh, an expanded uh, men's side and women's side. Um and, you know, you, you look here, like Boston College should be a burgeoning power here. Uh, obviously, Duke and Notre Dame is not a huge surprise. North Carolina Syracuse is not a huge surprise. But hopefully we get some more uh, some more interest in uh, growing both the sport in general. Um, I'm always excited when there are more West Coast and Southern schools adding. Shout out to, like, Florida, who we play this weekend. Shout out to Jacksonville, Vanderbilt, who was in the tournament. Um, but also, like, in the ACC profile, uh, I think it would be good to see more. So hopefully, fingers crossed. Yeah, agreed. I mean, the more, more schools like Florida, though, like that, that that add the better. The more schools like you know USC who plays women's lacrosse at the D1 level, like that that's great. You know, you're seeing like some of that in the men's game with Utah. Uh, it, it's I mean, I I've been pushing for a while. Not that I have any stake in this, but I've been pushing for a while too. Um, it's just more West Coast expansion. Um, Dan, I feel like the Wildhead conversation could go for next week because I feel like we have so much more to say there. So on that note, um, I would say, unless you have anything to add, why don't we wrap up here and then we, uh, we can kind of tease that out for next week. That sounds good to me. Uh, hopefully, fingers crossed this weekend, we can continue uh, weeks of women's lacrosse talk on the podcast, which, you know, overdue and well-deserved. <laughs> agreed, agreed. Uh, on that note, that was Dan. I'm John. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Trend News and Absolute Podcast. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, Megaphone, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, um, Overcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, and go orange. Orange.